Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. Welcome to the 26th episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast. We have cleared that hurdle now. All right. Uh, so Wealth Well Done podcast here. You guys know this is where we, we go after these tactical, practical, and spiritual uh, ways to help you do your wealth well done. Um, we've been living in this tactical pillar here. Uh, last, this is going to be the sixth week of us uh, in a row going after that, all in taxes. And taxes are a, they're such a major piece of, of someone's financial picture. And they are given, uh, they're given such little attention for what they deserve and how much the economic impact of these, you know, most people, you know, unless you're ultra type A, most people, they just try to get all, get all this compiled at the end of the year or early in the, the, the next year, get it sent off to a CPA, have the CPA tell them what they need to pay, they pay it and move on. And it's just this bird. It's like going to the dentist to get a cavity filled. People don't want to deal with it. <clears throat> they don't. They don't give it the attention it needs, and so that's why we are spending all this time uh, on taxes here. So last week we had Thomas Castelli uh, on. He is a partner with Hall CPA, and he is the one who is driving um, so much of the incredible content that comes out of the Tax Smart Investors um, forum that that I am a member of, and, and I get such value out of that. Um, so Thomas, thank you for coming on here again. I'm excited to get into this topic today. Let's do it. All right. Um, so as always, and especially with this one here, this is not a financial advice or tax advice. Uh, this is educational, informational. Um, this is something you can use around the dinner table as you talk about how does Elon must pay so little on taxes or anything else. That I don't know if this is what Elon uses, but this is a this is the strategy that some of the wealthiest people use to drive down their taxable income to a very low number, if not zero. Um, and so we're going to dig into that today. Um, it's one that I was just giddy as could be. Uh, I got to give the credit to Sean Bill and Dan Nicholson. They were the two that first introduced this to me. Um, actually, thank you, Karen Hannah, as well for, for that. Um, but they introduced it to me and educated me um, quite a bit. And they spent way too much time helping me with this. But then um, through Tax Smart Insiders and the Real Estate CPA, that, that's really cemented this knowledge. And so um, the, the Real Estate Professional Status Guide that you guys have, um, that helped me a ton. And now through the Tax Smart Insiders group that I'm in inside the Tax Smart Investors Forum, that uh, that's where I, I get a number of my specific questions answered. So I'm really grateful for the content that you put out there. Um, so let's let's jump right in because there's, there's obviously a ton to unpack here. Um, can you give us an overview of what real estate professional status is. Right, right. So the real estate professional status in a nutshell allows you to take losses from your rental properties and use them to offset your non-passive income, which includes income from a W-2 job or an active trader business that you might be running, portfolio income, and pretty much just about any other income that's not passive income. So could dive into a little bit about why this even exists in the first place. 
um, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, let's do that quick because I know that there's a, I think that'd be helpful. And then there's a ton of meat to get in on this. So yeah, why don't you give us, okay. why does okay. this exist? Okay, long story short, this exists because way back in the 1980s, uh, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 made all rental activities passive by default. Uh, there's a lot of abuse around this. A lot of wealthy people or high income earners would purchase properties and other tax shelters and use them to uh, you know, generate depreciation expenses, which are non-cash, to offset these uh, their high income and save a significant amount of money in taxes. And this is very controversial. So they kind of patched that by uh, introducing Section 469, which is known as the Passive Acti- Activity Rules, that made all rentals pass by default. Now, um, for a long time, for like probably a handful of years, uh, there was no way to really get around these rules or no no real way. But then in the in the mid '90s, what ended up happening was uh, the real estate industry had lobbied so heavily for this that they introduced this this uh, section 469C7, also known as the Real Estate Professional Status, which allows uh, people who spend more than 750 hours, more than half the total working time, in a real property trader business to take their losses. So this exists because of that, and. Uh, if you work full time in real estate effectively, and we'll I'm sure we'll talk more about it, you can you can use the losses from your rental properties to offset your other non passive income. All right, all right. So let, so to, to talk about this and, and kind of pull it down, I've got a W two, I've got a you know W two income here that I pay taxes on, or I own a business and I, it's treated as active, and so therefore I've got this income here um, that I that I owe at the highest tax rate of any taxes I pay, and then I have real estate that I own as well. And I, I manage that and, and it's, and it's some substantial portion of my time. And we'll get into the way that they qualify for this, but all real estate has depreciation. And so we have straight right. line depreciation. And if it's a residential property, it's 27 and a half years. If it's commercial property, it's 39 years. So that means if you own a commercial property, you know, and it's worth, you're going to take off one thirty-ninth of that value per year. If you're using straight, straight line depreciation, um, any good CPA is going to recommend you don't use that. And they're going to get into accelerated depreciation. And so accelerated depreciation right. then takes in all of these other accounts. We're going to get into that of, you know, five, seven, 15 year, what that looks like for accelerated depreciation. Absolutely. So what happens is when you, when, like I said, when you buy the property, they have 27 and a half, 39 years. Now, the thing is like there, when you buy the property, there's more than just the structure and the house or the building, for example, within that you're going to have, different types of uh, property you're going to have. You're going to have, uh, like, for example, appliances, carpentry, certain types of fixtures, things of that nature. That typically falls under tangible personal property, uh, which has a class life of five years. Now, um, that shortens the time, right? It goes from you're depreciating that portion of the property from, say, 27 and a half or 39 years down to five. And there's things like double declining balance that could allow you to even accelerate even further. But, and we'll get into another thing in a second on that. But then there's 15-year property, typically, um, which is land improvements. So things like sheds, pools, decks, things of that nature. parking um, lots. Right, stuff. right. All, all that good stuff, you know, that falls under land improvements. And that's depreciated over f- uh, 15 years, right? Um, and now, so you're, you're kind of condensing the, the timeline and then there's, you're accelerating it, right? Which, now there's okay, something called... Pause right there. So just for someone kind of taking this in for the first time, that means that instead of me depreciating this over 27 and a half years, <clears throat> the, the time value of money makes this even more advantageous because I'm able to depreciate right. this over a five-year or a 15-year period. So I'm taking more of a tax deduction up front 
which therefore right. saved me more money today and is more valuable right. to me because of compound interest over time and the time value of money. So instead of me getting a large deduction over, you know, 26 years from now, I'd rather take a smaller deduction then and a bigger deduction now and then use that money wisely between now and 26 years from now. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. The time value money is critical to, you know, understanding why, why someone would want to accelerate depreciation. Yeah. Um, now there's something called bonus depreciation. Um, bonus depreciation allows you to, uh, rapidly, I'd say rapidly accelerate, um, the property with a class life of less than 20 years in the first year of ownership. So between, uh, basically the end of 2017, September 27, 2017 through, uh, 2022, uh, December 31st, if you place a property, for example, in real estate into service during that time, you were eligible for 100% bonus depreciation. So that meant you could fully deduct that five and f- 15 year property in, in the context of real estate for the most part in that first year, right? In that first year, you're able to fully deduct it. That was quite powerful. Now, um, as we head into, well, we are in 2023. And in 2023, uh, bonus depreciation is 80%. And um, 80% of the, the cumulative between the five, seven, and we've only talked about because most of there's not much in seven, but the five, seven, and 15 year right. depreciation schedules, anything that falls in those three schedules is now able to be lumped together <clears throat> from accelerated depreciation into bonus depreciation. And now in 23, we can get 80% of that lump now in, in, year in the first year. <clears throat> right, right. And then the remaining amount is going to be depreciated over. Over the normal, over the schedule, they would normally be depreciated over. But yep, yeah, so you're able to get it 80% this year of that. And then it's going to phase out 20% every year going forward until 2027 when it's at zero as, as of current law. Um, but that's, that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, how that works. And just a side note here that, that that's going through Congress right now to have this be put in as a, I don't know, do you want to comment on, at all on that? Yeah, so there there is um there is an act out there. There's a bill. Uh, I believe it's called the uh, Make It in America Act, if I'm not mistaken. That once that in the bill they want to extend um bonus depreciate 100 bonus depreciation from 2023, so it, uh, through 2026. So it's going to be as if there's no step down, no 20 percent phase out per year, but still even within that bill, at least insofar as what I've seen so far, there's no movement to extend that beyond 2026. So we're still stuck at the 2026 cliff. It's just that it would be 100%. And I think a lot of people in the real estate world um, and some CPAs uh, would love to see that happen. So we'll have to to wait and see. Okay. So I can take that as a loss, this this loss here in year one. Let's let's, uh, let's put some numbers to this. So I have a, we use a million dollars as a, that's because it's easy math. I've got a million dollar property. Um, so now we need to look at this. So a, how much value applies to the structure versus the land because you can't depreciate the land. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll, for a simple amount, let's say it's, it's a $1.2 million property. And they say, and we assess that the land is worth $200,000. So now I've got a million dollar structure on here. What's some context as to what, what, um, depreciation someone might get out of this? What's a range? Yeah, right. So it, it definitely depends on the specifics of the property. Absolutely. But however, like a rule of thumb, you're looking at somewhere between 20 to 30% in general. It could be higher, in some cases, could be lower. But for the most part, you're looking at, at that band. 20 to 30% um, of the value of the structure. 
the value of structure improvements, just the non-land value of that. Right, right. Because yeah, the, the land doesn't depreciate. So you have to you have to back that out. Yep. And now you're looking at just a structure somewhere between twenty and thirty percent. Okay. So, so I'm selling one point two million dollar property, two hundred grand goes to the land, so we're just segmenting that out. A million dollars. I can I can, you know, not take Thomas Castelli to to the bank in this, but I am you know, I can say that somewhere in that two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars of bonus depreciation is, is what you know could qualify there. Right. So now let's get into let's get into the whole thing of, of, of transitions from passive income to active income. So so now with this now I've got I've got two to three hundred thousand dollars of losses. If I don't do anything else with this, if this is just stays as passive income, then that's two to three hundred thousand two to three hundred thousand dollars of losses I have to use against passive income. And right. there is nothing wrong with that, especially as as people you know uh, get a little bit older and have more assets that they've managed or invested. Um, you, passive income is is the goal. We want more and more passive income. That's what everyone said. That the mailbox money. Um, and so if we can offset that, that's great. But if someone still has high active income, active income being taxed at a higher rate than the passive income, this is where this gets so powerful. Well, well, it's it's uh, passive income is typically taxed at the same rate. You know, if you have like rental income, that could be taxed at the same rate. But, but you know, to to, to your point, most people are paying heavy months taxes on their on their active income. Yeah. So to turn that non-passive, basically, you have to qualify as real. If you're talking about rental property, you're looking at you're looking at qualifying as a real estate professional. And to do that, um, steps to qualify as a real estate professional. There's kind of two parts to it. The first one is you spend more than 750 hours in a real property trader business. And you have to spend more than 50% of your total working time in a real property trader business. So if you meet those two requirements, you'll qualify as a real estate professional. Now, briefly, there's 11 real property trades or businesses. Um, I'm not going to go through, break them all down here, but typically speaking, you know, it's property management. You're in construction, perhaps you're doing development or you're know, fix and flipping. Um, perhaps you're a real estate agent or broker, or maybe you just run a rental portfolio full time, or not full time, but you to meet those requirements. Uh, so that's typically how you qualify. Okay, so I don't have to, so real estate professional status does not mean realtor. It means I am in a real estate trade, and right. and one of these that qualify, and probably a little bit of gray area in there, but but they they give some pretty good guidelines as to yeah. as to what what those mean. So if I'm in one of those trades that qualifies, 750 hours. A year, and that is more than any time I spend anywhere else. So 750 hours there. Um, if I spend, you know, 12, you know, if I work 2,000 hour year and I spend 1,250 hours in another business, I'm still not a real estate professional. If I spend, you know, 600 hours in a couple other businesses, then 750 is more than those other two businesses, but still not 51% of my total time. Still don't qualify. Right. Right, right. You have to meet both of those requirements, and the fifty percent, the more than fifty percent of your total working time is ends up what's being the the the, the killer for for a lot of uh, for a lot of uh, people looking yes. to qualify. Okay, um, tracking the we want you hit quick on on the hours and then, and what hours qualify and how you track that. Right, right. So um, this is one of the most heavily litigated areas of the tax code. There's like hundred, there's like five over five hundred tax court cases on this. Um, and what, what the tax code says is that you can track your time. So you need to be able to substantiate that you met these requirements. And the tax code says that you could, uh, substantiate your time via any quote unquote reasonable means 
including narratives, calendars, um, time logs, calendar books, things like that. But what we've routinely seen is that when it comes to an audit or when it comes to a task court, um, that the time log is like the pillar. It is like the the main way that people are able to substantiate their time. It's the most reliable is I guess what I'm trying to say here. And um, so to track your time, you can track it on the spreadsheet. You can use a time tracking tool like a Clockify or a Toggle, plenty of others out there. Now, what time actually counts and doesn't count? That's, that's another, that's, that, that is the real question here. So again, this area is ripe for abuse. People want to abuse this area because of its tax saving potential. Imagine, imagine you made a million dollars and you were to take a $300,000 deduction against that million dollars and knock down paying from 1 million to 700,000 now you're paying taxes on quite powerful right. and all, all uh, so taking that money that was going to go there you put that into an income producing asset now we're right. going to compound the power there even more so yeah absolutely this is it's a wonderful tool right for abuse yeah right like just kind of give a picture right if you were if you had a $300,000 deduction you're in the 37% tax bracket you're looking at $111,000 $111,000 deduction, which is substantial. And that money could go towards a down payment on next property, right? And just do this all over again. So the point the point I'm trying to make with all this is it's highly sought after, but it's also highly litigated. Um, because what happens is people try to stuff their time. They'll try to put in any, like they'll try to put in any time they can into this, but into their material participation, it's called. And um, the reality is there's certain time that does not count. Education time does not count. So if you're listening to this podcast, I hate to break your heart. This is not going to count towards the real estate professional status. Um, and we tell our podcast members that all the time. Um, but um, also uh, travel time. Let me get to that in a second. But research time. Typically, the time you spend researching on the MLS or browsing Zillow or LoopNet or whatever website you're looking for, properties aren't air DNA if you're in the short-term rentals, that type of thing, uh, typically will not count towards the real estate professional status. Now, um, there's tax court cases that back this up. Now, when it comes to travel time, travel time is a highly contested area. Um, travel time by def- the IRS, they have an audit, their audit techniques guide, their ATG, they disallow it. That's the way that it's their position on it. So they're going to automatically disallow it. Now there's tax court cases out there that favor the IRS in certain cases, but then there's one tax court case in particular that basically the taxpayer was able to count their local travel time traveling to and from their local portfolio from their home office because the tax court found it to be integral or you know, uh, very important or a must do for their business. Okay. Um, having said that, uh, typically if you're having to hop on a plane to travel to the location or you're having to drive several hours out of town, that's when the travel time typically will not count. So that's just something to keep in mind with t- what type of hours typically don't count. Okay. And other type of hours that don't count are quote unquote investor level hours. Now these don't count if you're not going to be involved in the day to day operations. And I'll get into that in a, in a second. But like bookkeeping, uh, keeping records, reviewing property uh, management statements, things like that typically will not count um, if you're not self managing the property. Now, if you're self managing the property, you're typically considered to be involved in the day to day the day to day operations of the act of that property. And then those hours will start to count, like reviewing financial statements, things like that. Um, now, the time that is most bona fide is the time that's going to spend, um, it's going to take to actually make your property go or be involved in the day-to-day operations, things like showing the property for rent, doing repairs and maintenance yourself, running like credit checks on potential um, 
on, on potential tenants, um, managing and coordinating repairs and maintenance and capital improvements, um, walking the property, inspecting it after a capital improvement was done, for example, or just while you're renting it out to make sure it's up uh, to par with how you'd want it to be out in the marketplace. So those those are just, that's just a short list, like uh, marketing your property. So putting creating a website for it, uh, putting a uh, listing it out um, on all the rental platforms. You might list it on rent.com or whatever the case is. Those types of hours count because they're material. They're considered material or integral to the day-to-day operations of your property. And if you didn't do these activities, your property might not be able to run. For example, if you didn't repair the property, you might not be able to rent it out. Or you didn't coordinate somebody else to do the repairs, you might not be able to rent it out. Or if you didn't list your property for rent, then you might not be able to rent your property out. So those types of hours, the hours that are going to impact the day-to-day operations of your property are typically the hours that will count. So how about um, advice? Does your does your time in TaxSmart Insiders count? Because you're giving you're giving general, real estate advice to people. So you were you were actually participating in the real estate trade, but is that that's is that fall yeah. outside of the box? That's typically not going. Like that's typically not going to count. If you're getting on the phone with your tax advisor, typically will will not count as material participation. Okay. Um, what about so if someone's trying to have their business qualify, um, you know the, the stuff that they do, and they buy they buy real estate inside their business. So we, I'm a financial planner, and I choose to um, buy a couple properties inside my business. Um, you know, so so storehouses are going to own these properties here. I'm going to manage them, but now I spend you know I spend all these hours inside storehouse, of which some of those are focused on the real estate. <clears throat> what, what, what would it take for, for me to take my business that is not real estate and get those, get some of these hours in there to qualify or, or does that just not work? That, that's a, that's a really good question. That's a really good question because at this point you have to look at, well, what real property trades or businesses are there, right? You're, if you're buying property for another business, the question would be like, is there, there is no real property trade or business there per se, right? You're, your, your financial um, advisory practices buying the real estate, that would all kind of fall under your financial advisor umbrella. Uh, now, having said that, um, and I would need to verify this, but basically what might be where, where your case might land is where you have a, you own, you have like a separate entity where you own the rental property and then your rental property, you rent the rental property to your financial advisory practice there might be an argument to be made there that that counts towards the real estate professional status, sure. like the actual rental of it. However, typically what you do see though, when you do see someone buy a property for their practice, whether it be you know, financial advisory, accounting firm, medical firm, law firm, whatever the case is, typically they'll group their law firm or their, or their financial advisory practice, for example, in with their property. There's a special election for that that allows you to group those two together um, let's go up to that. What, what is what is grouping, and let's let's help people understand as they as they go from I've had these passive losses, and now I want to I want to use real estate professionals because I I no doubt I qualify for that. I want to use that. Okay. What have what what's this grouping thing? Why why is that so important? Okay, yeah. grouping grouping is important because let's just uh, there's two different types of grouping. So we'll go first with the real estate professional grouping. So let's say that you qualify as a real estate professional now. Qualifying as a real estate professional in and of itself doesn't do much, 
what you have to do is you have to prove that you materially participated in your rental activities as well, right? So let's just say, for example, you spent 750 hours and more than half your total work time as a real estate agent, let's just say. Now you're a real estate professional because that's one of the 11 real property trades or businesses. Um, but now let's say you buy a rental property or you, you have five rental properties. Um, now you would theoretically have to meet a, or not theoretically, you would have to meet a separate material participation test on each and every one of those rental properties um, in order to qualify. Now you can make a, a grouping election. It's uh, sometimes referred to as the dash nine grouping election because it's found under reg section 1.469-9G. But what it does is it treats all of your rental activities together as one property or as one activity as it's referred to. And what that allows you to do is meet one material, one of these tests across your aggregate portfolio at that point, rather than having to meet one on each individual property. So that's 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 the grouping election for real estate professionals. Okay. And these tests, by the way, we've got there's seven different tests in there. One of well, let's see if we get time to go to short term rental. If not, I will cover that in another episode. Um, so so you mentioned that I can group. So could I take my Active bits will continue to me as an example here, but you know, this to someone else too. Um, so I could take my financial planning practice, which certainly spends a lot of time talking about real estate to, to investors. But if I go buy a portfolio of rental properties and, and can I group my financial planning practice in with these rental activities? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, no, that that's a good question, and and no, so those are the, the, this this that's a separate election, and that there's a, there's a distinction. So the, the, what I just mentioned right there, that's just for your rental properties. You can't group that in with another business. That's just going to be for rentals. You're just grouping your rentals together. Yeah. Now there is another election, another grouping election under Reg Section one point four sixty nine dash four, that if you have a business. Um, so say you have your financial advisory practice and you have this and you own just let's just say you own 100 percent whatever that is right and then you buy a rental property in another entity and um you have that has the same ownership percentage as that business that you house so like your your financial practice rents this property that you own in another entity you can make an, a, a grouping election to group those two together okay and then um you materially participate in those two activities together um, and in that case, the reason why a lot of people will use this is because let's say you have a financial advisory practice, you're materially participating in that advisory practice. You group that rental property in. Now you're materially participating in that rental as well with that grouping election. Now you can take the losses from that specific property. Um, they will be non-passive in that case. But, um, but that's still only need to hit 750 hours or... No, not in that case. Okay. Not in that case when you're grouping the building that's associated with the business together in that in under those circumstances. In that case, you don't have to qualify as a real estate professional. If you're grouping in your your there's basically an exception for it effectively that says that w once you group those two together, now your that rental property and that business are one and the same. Okay. And you can materially participate in the business and by because they're both now the same. It's going to be, the losses will be non-passive from the rental. It's it's out, it, the, a good way to look at it. It's almost as if your financial advisory practice owns the building and is not renting it out. Okay. It just owns the building and depreciating. It's kind of what it's like, yeah. but it's limited just to that building that your financial advisory practice is. And I'm, I'm going to just hit right there. Absolutely, please, if you're listening to this and clearing that, go into the details with your CPA. If your CPA does not agree, understand, or, or give them the out to say, Hey, I'm not, I'm not fluent in this. 
and then reach out to Tom, reach out to the whole CPA, you know, get on, get on tax smart investors and, and, and get your questions answered through that. Um, okay. So what, what are the downsides to grouping? And then we got, I want to hit recapture before you need to go as well here. Okay. Yeah. We could, we could go, we, 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 we could go. I, I, I got some time. So, um, so the, Okay, so do you, uh, it was, no, um, what's the, what's the downside to grouping? So because okay, it sounds okay. great, like I can I can now claim real estate professional status. I you know of course I make twenty million dollars a year as this financial planner. Um, I, I don't, um, but the and so I'm able to take all this income and and you know take my taxable income down to a hundred grand. So that's fantastic. But what's the downside of grouping? Oh, yeah. So the downside of grouping, the primary downside of grouping is that if you had suspended passive losses from before you became a real estate professional. So let me give you an example. Like if you've owned rental properties for many years and you, and you, at some juncture in time, you became a real estate professional, there's a good chance that you have losses that had been suspended and carried forward as passive before that point. Um, now, when you normally, when you sell a rental property or you sell an activity, as it's called under the tax code, you're able to unlock the losses that were associated with that activity when you quote unquote substantially dispose of it. Now, the problem is when you're grouping all your rental activities together as one and say you have 10 properties just for the sake of argument and you sell one of them off, you're now now no longer substantially disposing of that entire activity. Now you have, you, you still have nine properties. It's not all of it. So what happens is, the losses, the previous suspended losses you have can will only be unlocked to the extent of the income or gain that you have from that associated from the prior activity. So in other words, like this rarely is re- in, in the reality from a practical standpoint, this is rarely an issue um, unless you have actual losses on a property. But um, basically, if you had substantial losses from one property and you sold it and um, you... you you will only be able to unlock those losses to the extent of the gain. So some of those losses might be still locked in the passive bucket. But from from our experience, I mean, it happens, it, it can happen, but it's very rare that you see this downside or this potential downside actually come to fruition. It's just more something to be cognizant of um, more than I'd say you have to be worried about it. Okay. But yeah. All right. Um, recapture. So I so I take this big loss, right? So I and, and we'll we'll spend more time on on ten thirty ones. We can hit that a little bit already, but we'll spend more time on that later. So let's just stick on the recapture side of things here, without the ten thirty one piece um, for right now. So I take I have this one point two million dollar property back to our previous example. I've taken a three hundred thousand um, dollar deduction on this, and let's say I want to sell it two years later. What what happens then? All right. So when you sell a rental property, um, you're getting ta- your gain, your total gain on the sale is not just the sales price minus the purchase price. Um, what happens? It's, it's the sales price minus your adjusted basis. So when you buy a property, your adjusted ba- your unadjusted basis is going to be the cost of the property plus and minus some selling expenses. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to give you your unadjusted basis. Now, when you take depreciation. It's going to be subtracted. The amount of depreciation you take, accumulated depreciation, it's called, is going to be subtracted from that unadjusted basis and give you your adjusted basis. And when you sell the property, it's the sales price minus your adjusted basis. So to kind of give you just a quick example of, of where we're going, say you have a million dollar property, right? And 
you bought it for a million bucks and you took $200,000 of the depreciation. So now your adjusted basis is 800,000. But now you sell it for 1.2 million where your gain isn't two, isn't 200,000, it's 400,000. Now the amount from the depreciation, that's depreciation recapture. Now, the, the gain from appreciation, that's going to be taxed at your capital gains rate. Right? If, if you're, it's a long-term capital gain, you're looking at 15 to 20%, perhaps NITs involved, depending on the circumstances. But that's what you're looking at. Now, the depreciation recapture, that 200000 from depreciation, that's going to be taxed at, at depreciation recapture rates. Now, the, the portion of it from uh, straight-line depreciation from 27 and a half year or 39-year depreciation that's going to be recaptured at a maximum rate of 25%. Um, so that's the highest rate. Now, the portion that was accelerated or perhaps used bonus depreciation on, say, the 5- and 15-year property, that can be taxed up to um, 37%. It's taxed at ordinary income rates. So that can be taxed up to 37%, and there's something to be cognizant of when you take it. Yep. Okay, that, that's very important. So, so if you dispose, if you choose to... Uh, I've got, you know, I've got some people who are looking at they bought a property that's not performing well. They've gone through a couple, uh, <clears throat> they've gone through a couple property managers, and they can't, they can't get this thing to rent, and they're con- contemplating selling it. And so if they, if they sell that, then they are going to take anything that they took as a, as a on, on the depreciation side of that. That's going to go back and hit their active income and be taxed whatever their income rate is for this year for the year in which they sell it. Or yeah, the, year so which they, the, the tax savings they had, the year that they took appreciation. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. It's the year they, they sell the property. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. And then if they 1031 it, then if they, if they use a 1031, and again, we don't have to go deep into that uh, today here, but if they do a 1031 at that point, what happens to the depreciation recapture? Right. So you defer the depreciation recapture um, with the 1031 exchange. You defer the capital gain, you defer the depreciation recapture into the future um, with the 1031. So in other words, you sell the property with the 1031. Now you're going to exchange it or you're going to buy a new property with it. And with that, you're going to defer all the capital. You're, if you do the 1031 exchange the right way, you're going to defer uh, the gain, including the recapture um, that you had from the sale of that property. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, as no you can see, we're here, uh, been home where you're consuming this, uh, th- this is just a, such a wealth of information and, and whether you are considering this as a strategy for you, if you're already a real estate investor or you're contemplating getting into that, uh, you really, really, really need to have uh, good help around you and all, all real estate advice is not the same. All CPAs are not the same. And I highly, um, highly recommend that you, you do join this TaxSmart Insider Group through the TaxSmart Investor Portal, which the website for that is therealestatecpa.com. I got, got that right, correct? Yep, the real, yep that's right. Okay, therealestatecpa.com, TaxSmart Investor, TaxSmart Insider, Hall CPA. Um, I just, it, it's, it's so valuable to, to you and to the, the financial impact that, that having these strategies and, and being able to get these questions answered for you uh, it, it makes a huge difference. So, then um, you use these guys. Obviously, some people aren't going to change CPAs to to them, and you know that not not everyone should. Um, but if you use this as a tool to help maximize your CPA and then the knowledge that they have by showing that you are an involved, 
applying with this, and I think it's going to be a, bring a ton of value to you. Uh, Thomas, truly, truly appreciate the, the time and the expertise that you provided here um, to me, for, for me and my clients that you provided through the forum. Um, truly appreciate what you do. Yeah, I appreciate having me on, Eric. It was a fun time talking about taxes. Love it. All right, yeah, taxes, taxes can absolutely be interesting, uh, especially when you put real dollars to them like this. So if this is something that is valuable to you, subscribe, share, tell other people about this. That uh, and I hope that again that we're creating value that is going to uh, to make a big impact on on your finances. So thank you again, Thomas. Have a good week, everyone. You too. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.